I don't know if I want to read this whole thing. Why don't you read it, actually? <laughs> oh, okay. Whoa, right. if we had the guest open. Flat. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Okay, but where is this? Do I still say I'm Brody Hagenbotham? <laughs> no, you should <laughs> draw everybody off. Everyone. Okay. Welcome, everyone. This is To The Well. It's a podcast from UNC Chapel Hill students about the intersections between faith, reason, and culture. My name is Brody Hagenbotham. I'm on the editing team here with To The Well, and I'm joined by our editor-in-chief, Parker Marshall and one of our writers for this semester, Sylvia Ward. So Sylvia, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, so I am studying English and psychology and I am working on applying to seminaries for next year because I want to study counseling. Um, And I'm about to graduate this spring. And that's that's pretty much it. (laughs) That's great. Uh, what, what What led you to Let's do counseling first, and then what led you to English? Yeah, so counseling actually, it's appropriate that you asked that first, because I actually knew I wanted to do counseling before I knew I wanted to be an English major, Um, which is a little ironic, but whatever. Um, Yeah, so like in high school, I first was interested in counseling because I heard um, a counselor talk about what she did, and I heard the way that she described it as, uh, just the fact that she was able to occupy the space where someone really experienced the gospel in a personal way for the first time and how that was a big part of her job and I just thought that was so beautiful and I thought about it a lot um, and then later it kind of resurfaced as something that I thought could be a fit for me based on um, just how I'm wired and uh, the fact that I really enjoy having um, deeper conversations with people and I enjoy asking questions and listening and knowing people so those were just some of the things that I yeah, some of the things I thought about that led me there. That is great. <laughs> Thanks. That's awesome. I think we'll come back to a lot of that because some of your article deals with the individualism of p- treating people's direct needs as well as the collectivism of being part of the whole gospel. And so I feel like the, you have good insight on that as somebody who's interested in counseling. Um, so then how did you find yourself in the English and psychology double major? Yeah, so I took a couple of English classes uh, for like gen ed's freshman year, and um, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> I so I realized that I really enjoyed English um, and was good at it, uh, which I didn't really expect coming into college because my older sister is like really good at English, so I always assumed like that wasn't my thing, um, but then I just realized like how much I enjoyed it and I like yeah I enjoyed the process of it and the discussion and um, I think also like as someone who's interested in counseling and enjoys knowing people, like, there's something really rewarding to me about being able to analyze characters in a novel, um, and to do that well, and, like, like, to have to root my observations about them in the text and what I have actually observed, um, yeah, it's, like, challenging and fun for me, so that's, that's one reason. It actually, like, isn't unrelated to what I want to do long term. Yeah, that's great, and I think that comes through in the article a lot, um, and I think it's a helpful tool to, to read scripture with this idea of analyzing a character because scripture especially the old testament tends to have really complicated characters that <laughs> because they were real yeah so. yeah <laughs> that um act in ways that a lot of times contradict what we think like biblical models should do yeah um and it's interesting to see like god working through these really messed up characters um, and so I feel like you're going to be able to bring an a literary approach that is really necessary. Why don't you tell us a little bit of a like elevator pitch spiel of your article? 
I was looking at the idea that um, in a lot of the books that I read, I see um, truths communicated that can also be found in scripture, um, but they're kind of found in scripture in a more complete way. So the things that you learn about people by reading a novel that presents people in a realistic way are gonna be um, not only affirmed in scripture, but also redeemed. Um, and so that's part of the reason I enjoy being an English major. But then also uh, I talked about how specifically um, I see, and um, so Leo Tolstoy wrote a book called War and Peace and in it, one of the things that he focuses on is the idea that um, his characters both have this, this need to be part of something collective uh, and this reality that part of their existence is very collective and they're connected to everybody else um, and to these rules that they have to operate in within society, but then they also function as individuals and have this urge to rebel and meet their own needs personally. Um, and so that's kind of just a paradox of the way that people function and the way that existence works that Tolstoy observes. Um, and I also find that paradox in um, characters in the Bible, and particularly I focused on Elizabeth in the book of Luke, um, and then, or sorry, yeah, Elizabeth and Zachariah in the book of Luke, um, and just looking at how God provides them with a story that is both collective and individual. And that was way more than two sentences. No, that's <laughs> great. I, I, was hoping, <laughs> I was hoping you'd go more because that's really interesting. So when so you mentioned something about these truths that are noticed by writers in the world at large um, that are redeemed, confirmed and redeemed, I think were your words in scripture. Yeah. Would you just share a little bit more about, about that idea? Yeah, so I think um, part of my thought is that if a writer presents characters in a way that's realistic, um, you see a commentary on human needs. Um, and so, like with Tolstoy, part of what I was seeing was this commentary on the fact that we kind of, we need to be part of something that's collective and to be part of a story that's bigger than us. Uh, but we also really need to be able to function with freedom as individuals. Um, and so he kind of almost just, he presents this need and sort of, sort of what he's pointing out is like an imperfection, I think, in a way. Or that's something that I'm able to observe when I, when I read this book by Tolstoy. But then reading the Bible, it's like you see that need presented and you also see an answer that God provides for it in the gospel, which gives us this, this reconception of humanity because we're provided with a new purpose. And we're not just left in our need, but we're, we have those needs met. Wow, that's cool. I feel like that idea of tension and resolution based on just things that are true about humans is really characteristic of narrative at large. Yeah, I mean, I think that something that I have recently been um, just really struck by with Christianity um, is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that don't make sense unless you're looking at them um, through the perspective of any coherent worldview, but particularly the gospel. Um, and so not just in literature, but just in the way we look at the world and ask really big questions like, is there such a thing as consciousness or, um, that would be an example of one. We're getting solipsistic in here. Uh, like why is, why is self-sacrifice beautiful? Those kind of things that, um, kind of what we were talking about, what the general theme was for the first issue of the journal, but um, through the, if you look at those things through the, the lens of Christianity, it all pieces together in a way that is less 
um, attractive when you're looking at them kind of fragmented. Yeah, that's cool. And how do you normally make sense? Uh, so like what kind of resolution of these problems does Tolstoy give? Um, so I think, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> that there's more than just one answer to that question. I think uh, particularly in War and Peace, which is like a really long novel that I would not have read if I didn't have a class on it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he gives a couple of different solutions through different characters, but um, in the character of Rostov, which is like kind of a niche character that I used in my article, um, there's not a huge resolution given. Um, you're really just able to observe the tension. Um, but he has other characters where you kind of see this resolution in the fact that they're able to have peace with the world and embrace the world more fully um, without demanding their own agenda guide it. But then at the same time, um, yeah, they're able to like find this freedom as individuals and then also accept that there's um, collective significance as well. But I will say that um, the solution he comes to through that is um, it's along the right lines or along lines that um, still make me think about the gospel, but it's vague because he's not he's not getting to the meat of it and he's not bringing Christ into it. And so there's still that piece of like, you're kind of hungry for more resolution, or at least I am as a reader. Wow. Yeah. Christian. But yeah. So have you ever read War and Peace, Parker? I have not. Okay, great. Me neither. This is not the most sophisticated commentary on War and Peace. That, I was my, expecting the most sophisticated commentary on War and Peace. <laughs> I don't know why I brought you on this of, podcast. It's kind of a niche thing to fixate on, but whatever. No, it's cool. It's good. Um, what, so, why don't you tell us a little bit, just like what, what is? Give us a Spark Notes, Sylvia edition of War and Peace, just so that we can know who Rostov is and who these characters are and what their problems are. Yeah, yeah. So the main deal with War and Peace is that it's a novel that um, it takes place during Napoleon's invasion of Russian in eighteen. Uh, Russian, excuse me. It takes place during Napoleon's invasion of Russia in eighteen twelve. Um, and so you kind of have two different main settings in the book, and one of them is the war front, and one of them is the home front. And uh, you have way too many characters in each setting, and <laughs> you get to know them all way too well. Um, but basically, with all of these moving parts, uh, what you're kind of seeing is that Tolstoy isn't allowing for there to be a cut and dry uh, difference between the way that people operate and live their lives on the war front versus the home front. And you kind of see the same drives um, controlling people in both places, no matter the significance of the historical moment. We all have mundane human individual needs, and no matter the um, yeah, no matter the structure of where we are, like even on the home front, people are ruled by societal norms, so they might as well be part of you know an army that has all these regimented um, ways of doing things. Wow. Yeah. So then tell us how this plays itself out in the character of Rostov. Because in the article, you focus specifically on Rostov. I do. So why don't you tell us, in his case, how does this tension between the individual identity and needs and the collective responsibility, how does, how does that manifest itself? Yeah, so we see in Rostov um, this character that's really like willing to give himself to the grander cause of Russia in a lot of ways. I think he's in love with the romanticism of that idea. Um, and so when he first sees Emperor Alexander, who kind of encapsulates for him this, this cause of Russia, he just wants to do anything for this man. And Tolstoy writes that he would plunge through fire and water at one word from this man. So he just longs to be, to almost sacrifice himself and just be part of this cause and ignore his individual needs. Um, and so there you see sort of his, um, the part of his existence that's collective um, as that being like a part of his reality and also something he's hungry for. Um, 
But then later, um, there actually comes a place where he ignores the command of his commander, whose name I don't remember, um, but uh, in order to have a chance for a personal encounter with the emperor. So he goes from just wanting to give himself to a collective cause to wanting to be recognized individually and wanting to impose his own agenda on things um, instead of just adhering to the laws laid down. Yeah. So was there any, um, just the, the story of, like, or the tension of the wanting to be part of the collective cause and wanting to um, like satisfy your own personal mission. Um, is Was there any component of UNC's culture that that feels, or is there any component of UNC's culture that that feels pertinent to, in your opinion? So are you saying like, how does it relate to like daily life as a student or yeah. like to the culture here? Ooh, ooh, that's good, yeah. I think definitely, like, you could argue that we see that with the way that UNC students uh, interact with social justice issues, where, like, a lot of people here, I love, like, just walking through campus and eavesdropping because everybody is talking about some, like, big, giant world problem, and they're expressing their opinions on it, and, like, people are just constantly having one-on-one conversations about this, and um, a lot of people are concerned about the same issues and really passionate about them, and I think that comes largely from wanting to be part of something that's collectively significant and kind of makes a dent in the world, like in terms of bringing justice to the world. But I think, I mean, you definitely also see this desire for like individual freedom and being recognized individually um, in the way that we interact with that, where you do this achievement culture, I think, of having to be the best student and the best activist and the, the person who champions the most for things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we're hungry to be recognized individually on campus through our successes, and we're also hungry to be part of something bigger, which is also part of why we engage in the work that we do. Yeah, that's an interesting idea that our desire to be the best at helping the collective makes us really individual. I think that's like really prominent at UNC. Um, do you feel like, do you feel like UNC, or maybe just Western culture even, falls too far on one side or the other of this dichotomy? Too far? I mean, um, I think, uh, I mean, probably most people who have studied Western culture and are, like, maybe have more authority to talk about it, uh, would say that we fall more toward the, like, the side of individualism, for sure. Um. And uh, yeah, because it's all about individual achievement and that's how you identify yourself in Western culture. Um, yeah, is like what you've done personally and it doesn't, it's not supposed to be about your family or their expectations of you. Um, yeah, because we live in a, yeah, we live in a culture that's individualistic. Yeah. What would you say, or maybe like what would Tolstoy say? <laughs> or what would scripture say? So you're speaking for all of them, by the way. The Bible, Tolstoy, yes. and yourself. Ex cathedra. Yeah. Here it is. What would you say <laughs> is the key to striking a good balance? To striking a good balance? Between the collective needs and the individual needs. Ooh. Um, yeah, so I think that, um, at least like in the passage that I'm kind of looking at in my article, and really something that I see like most times that I read scripture is that the gospel provides a way of life that um, it's not a balance between individualism and collectivism um, because I think there's a problem with both of those ways of viewing the world 
where obviously with individualism, you become self-absorbed, you become um, too little aware of the needs around you because it's all about you and it's all about what you want and how you make a name for yourself, no matter who you have to bulldoze on the way. Um, but with collectivism, it's, um, I think it can be dishonest and it's, it's like you can't, um, you can't step out and, and defy what's going on with tradition, um, even when it's the right thing. If you're totally given to collectivism, you have to conform. And, um, and I think we have an easier time seeing that that's not honorable in American culture um, because of the way we value individual freedom. Um, and so I think because both of those ways of life are lacking, um, it's really beautiful that like in scripture we have this reconception of humanity that allows us to, um, I think it emboldens us to step out and, and contradict the expectations of tradition um, which is something I was really sad I didn't have time to talk about in my article was this moment uh, when uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah name John the Baptist. They're actually, they're um, contradicting collectivism. Yeah. They're like contradicting collectivist culture because the family is expecting him to be named a family name. And they're saying no, which is kind of, in a way, it's individualistic. But it's not really individualistic. It's just, it's the empowerment of the individual. But they're doing it according to God's plan. So they're not doing it for themselves. Mm which is what keeps it from being individualistic. Um. Wow. That's incredible. I've never thought about this stuff in reference to that passage. So would you talk to us a little bit more about using that passage, what scripture's answer is to this, this problem? Yeah, so I think um, the way that scripture answers the problem of kind of being tugged toward just self-absorbed individualism and then also toward just... Um, collectivism, kind of mindless collectivism, is that uh, we are called to sacrifice ourselves the way, that, the way that you do in collectivism, but we're called to do that for a cause that is, um, it's more perfect than just the traditions of our culture. Um, and at the same time, we are called to be our whole selves. Um, so even though we're, we're deferring to God's plan, he also sees us as individuals and wants to use us the way that he's made us within that plan. Yeah, um, uh, this whole conversation makes me think of this Donald Miller, Miller quote. Always Donald Miller. From Blue Lake Jazz. Mm -hmm. um, it's a classic. He says, It's a classic. <laughs> the most difficult lie I've ever had to, I have ever contended with is this, life is a story about me. And, um, I don't know, I like that. I like the idea of, um, that we, already you actually talked about this in your wedding speech, but, uh, that we, <laughs> like, we, people love Shout out. to tell stories, um, and we love being a part of a story, and we love, um, yeah, we just love stories, and we want, and you could frame, um, a lot of life as, as trying to find, trying to fit yourself into a certain story. Um, and that's kind of, I think, where the individualist, collectivist um, conversation comes in, is like, who is the main character of the story? And the gospel tells a story that's eternal and um, really beautiful. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the individual side of the Elizabeth and Zechariah story because I think you've painted the actually talk to us about both talk to us about 
how Elizabeth and Zechariah are serving a collective need as well as having their individual needs met. Because you, you discussed both of those in your, your article. I'd love to hear you elaborate. I think uh, reading the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, I, uh, one of the first things that jumps out to me is this idea that um, God is really kind of contradicting the idea that individuals are able to have control of their own lives or have a right to their own lives uh, in the fact that he's telling Elizabeth, hey, this is what your child's purpose is going to be. Here's what you're going to name your kid. Um, and I mean, effectively, he's telling her that her body is not her own because he has a purpose for it. And he does the same thing with Mary, I think, in a more dramatic way. But Elizabeth is kind of the foreshadowing of that, where he's saying, um, you're going to get pregnant and your child is going to be this prophet. And also he can't drink wine and he has to eat this and do this. And um, there are all these regulations for her child's life that are beyond her control. So God is really um, contradicting the idea that she has control of her own life or her child's life. And so in that sense, he's contradicting her individualism and pulling her into this, um, this collective plan that um, is really, it's for the purpose of like so many more people than she could possibly comprehend this bigger plan of the gospel that John is gonna pave the way for the savior of the world. Like that's definitely a collective plan that doesn't really have to do with Elizabeth individually in a lot of ways, um, which is why reading the passage, I'm like struck by the way that Elizabeth says, the Lord has done this for me. Um, and recently, like the first time that I really noticed that line, I was like, that is so naive. Like, he didn't really do this for you. Like, there's a bigger plan going on here. Um, stop being so selfish. Yeah, stop being so self-centered, Elizabeth. Um, but then I think I also realized that she wasn't wrong in that um, because God had done this for her. Like, he chose for her part in this story to be specific. And when she says, he has taken away my disgrace among the people, that's not his only purpose in bringing John into the world, but it's still, it's part of it. And it's like, he has this, this cosmic plan, but it, it's big enough to touch the least of these. Um, and it's big enough to fill all those spaces um, that would go unseen otherwise, in addition to being grand and um, sweeping across history. So That is awesome. I've always, I've always enjoyed the ties in Luke chapter 1 between the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah and the story of Hannah in the book of First Samuel. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because, I, and I think that Luke is writing this intentionally, and, and I think he's drawing out the details of Elizabeth's story in a way that would remind us. And I think God created this story in a way that is meant to point back. But the big difference between Hannah's story and Elizabeth's story is that Hannah offers up her son and says, if you will let me bear a child, it will be in service to you. I will give the child to your service. And um, it's interesting that, that by the time the story with Hannah, or sorry, the story with Elizabeth unfolds, mm -hmm. it's God intentionally saying, your child is not your own. Even your body is not your own. Um, there's a bigger purpose here going on. And then that's not something that she gets to decide like Hannah did. Um, and I think of how hard that must be and must have been. Um, and even uh, you know, later in that story, Zechariah comes across the, the angel and doubts it and has problems with it. Mm -hmm. And then is silenced from all of his problems until it all comes about. I think that's, I think that's really cool. Um, 
So this method, or maybe not method, but this observation of reading a piece of literature, noticing that the problems that it focuses on and the issues that it tries to resolve within the human person is resolved in scripture in a much grander way, um, in a much more redemptive way. Do you think that this is something that people should be applying more to media that they consume um, in literature that they read? Do you think it's something, because Tolstoy was writing from a Christian perspective, largely, um, but do you think that this is something that, that could be applied to any movie that we watch that has this character going through a struggle um, or any book that we read? Do you think that's something that people should apply more often? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think um, definitely, I think any, and it's not just like books or movies, I think any like piece of art that evokes something true um, or provokes thought about something true can also be put in conversation with the gospel in a meaningful way. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think that does become more a part of our lives as we have the Holy Spirit walking with us and, um, yeah, it, reminding us that the gospel is really the anchor of our identity, then it's going to come to mind more. And I think it's, yeah, it's always really rewarding for me to, like, bring the gospel into those thoughts. Um, let's just expand this. Let's expand this out a little bit more because I think that that's something that I've, I've heard people do, this idea of, putting media in conversation with the gospel media not just being news but i mean the like stories fiction movies art poetry putting those things in conversation with the gospel um but it's i feel like it's a little bit hard to do in practice so do y'all have like pieces of media movies or something that um have also struck you as directly in conversation with the gospel, either in tension or in harmony and anything like that. One of my favorite writers is named Walker Percy, and he wrote this movie called, sorry, he wrote this book called The Movie Goer about this dude named Binks who's like this sort of like, I would say he's, he's very existential in his thinking, but he fits in the sort of like the Southern um, upper class in New Orleans, and he's got this rich family history but he's kind of a weird dude, but he also, like, plays the game of being a wealthy Southern guy, um, like a single man, and um, the moviegoer was meaningful for me because it um, does a really good job of pressing into the questions of why, um, like, what is behind sort of the materialist modern way of viewing life, where your purpose is to accumulate wealth and be comfortable and be cultured um, and know the right people and that um, at least for me for a long time I viewed people who were content in that lifestyle as um, just people who were okay with not asking big questions or didn't feel the need to ask big questions um, but what Walker Percy does a great job of doing is kind of unraveling that um, those, no one really escapes big questions, just um, it's almost as if modernity has given us really bad resources to like temporarily answer them until we die. And um, I remember reading the movie goer and feeling like really convicted of um, 
just like the way that I feel when I get really caught up in accumulating things or getting achievements or being liked by the right people. And I think it has a lot to speak into our context. So how did how did you feel when that when you put that in conversation with the gospel? How did you feel was like the gospel-centered answer to that problem? Um, I think the gospel-centered answer was just is just that we're all like even the most wealthy, um, like comfortable person is still. Um, looking for answers to like some base desires and um, like desires to be known really well or desires I guess to be loved would be a simple way of putting it um, and that that is an unchanging reality of being human um, that we're searching for fulfillment and for me I, I believe that that fulfillment is found in the life or the death and resurrection of Jesus that that like gives the fulfillment that the desires are chasing after um but i the book exposed to me ways in which i was um still poking at that fulfillment elsewhere that were really unsatisfying to me but were so ingrained into the way that we look at life in modern times that i didn't really notice them yeah that's good um the one example that struck me lately is my wife and I listened to the audiobook of Girl on the Train. I don't know if you've heard of that book or that movie. Um, but it's basically, it's about this woman who is kind of in the dumps of life, just in the like, worst situation. She's, um, like, her husband has left her. She's an alcoholic. And she's on a train, and she looks out the window, and she goes the same route every day. She looks out the window and sees this family who are really happy and really enjoying life. And she becomes so obsessed with that image that um, it creates a lot of problems because at one point she sees the, the wife uh, of this family cheating on the husband. There's like, you know, during the workday, there's someone else at the house. And um, this creates such problems for her. And then the, the, that theme follows throughout the book, this idea of like having a perfect, um, like perfect life ends up, motivating people to murder each other and to lie and, and steal and do all of these terrible things that end up wrecking their lives because of this like ideal goal of their human existence. And it kept drawing me back to that this idea of what is a human made for? What, what is the thing that we long for? Like C.S. Lewis talks about this other world that we know we are desiring and um, I think it was cool putting the gospel in conversation with a book like that. And so, how do you think? How do you think people should start trying to notice those things? How do you how do you begin to to know how to apply this method? I guess. Yeah, I think. Um, well, I think zooming out. One thing that I would kind of notice about. Um, about being able to bring the gospel into, I don't know, a book that I'm reading, is that um, largely reading is kind of the work that I've been given to do right now. And so bringing the gospel into that makes a lot of sense for me because I'm having to do it like most days, right? And so I think not everybody needs to be soaking in literature all the time. 
that's just not a need that everybody has. <laughs> but um, don't it, let the English department hear you say that. Well, no, I can't. <laughs> I said it. <laughs> I stand by it. Um, no, but also I think like that everybody has a work that they've been given to do every day, and I think there's a way to bring the gospel into conversation with that work, um, no matter what it is. Uh, so you know, we as students that might be reading novels or it might be something else. It might be learning more about global issues. Um, and I think that, um, especially if you're a student and you've been gifted with the desire to learn and um, to engage ideas and make connections, um, then it's, it's something that we're called to do is apply that gift to uh, being able to process the gospel in our daily life. And so I think bringing the, converse, or the gospel into conversation with just your daily work is a really important practice. Um, and it, it really goes back to the idea of being an individual, but also being in a story that's bigger than us. Because um, God created us as individuals with individual jobs to do each day. Um, but he also created us as individuals in a story that is bigger than us and that involves his kingdom coming. And I think to keep remembering that we're part of a story that's bigger than us, um, we have to, we have to think about it in conversation with our daily life. Um, because the reality of our existence is that what's going to be on our mind a lot of the time is going to be mundane, but also those things aren't, um, they're not separate from the whole story that we're part of. And I think being able to think about that more, um, it just reminds us that both of those aspects of existence are equally real and um, that God is in both. And I think that's really important. Well, thank you, Sylvia, for joining us. Uh, I wish you the best as you're continuing to flesh out these ideas in your article. I'm excited to see it in print. Thank you. By the beginning of next semester, as long as we stay on our timetable, Parker. <laughs> We're on it. We're on it. Um, so please tune in later for future episodes where we'll be able to interview lots more authors and artists and poets uh, about all the exciting gospel-centered, God-glorifying, thoughtful work that they're doing.